everyone, and welcome to The Smell Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boateng. This week, join me in listening to an episode with Dr. Greg Pask, an insect neurobiologist. His bio on the Middlebury College website states that he is interested in understanding the powerful sense of smell that insects use to locate food, find mates, and communicate with others. Greg is a professor there, and the college is located in Vermont. We had a great conversation about how insects use their senses of smell to navigate the world, his work as a professor, and much more. Our interview was recorded on September 19th, 2020. Let's listen to the interview. All right. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the Smell Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a nice day. So to get started, can you tell us all where are you from and where do you currently live? Well, yeah. So thanks for having me on. First off, it's really great to kind of hopefully bring some more insect information about smell to the to your audience. So I am originally from uh, South Jersey. I grew up in Medford, New Jersey, and then moved down halfway through uh, my childhood to Cape May, New Jersey, which is a big resort town, kind of at the very southern tip of New Jersey. Um, and my parents actually run a bed, run a bed and breakfast down there. Cool. And we, yeah, it's, it's a, it was a fun experience growing up in there. And then we just moved, my whole family moved to Middlebury, Vermont. I, I teach at Middlebury College and I just started in July. Oh, so it's new to you that you've been in Vermont. Yes. That's really it's cool. Definitely yeah. a weird, uh, it's definitely a weird time to join a community during the, the coronavirus pandemic, but it's, it's been really good for us so far. That's awesome. So I'm I'm not new to New Jersey anymore. I moved here in 2018. So it's been a little bit over two years, but I we lived, my husband and I moved to Morristown, New Jersey first, and now we currently live in Plainfield. And I can share with you, and I'm going to remedy this soon, but I've actually never been to the coast yet. I've never gone to the ocean. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's, uh, <laughs> I feel like it gets, it gets a bad rep with uh, the Jersey Shore popularity that arose you know maybe 10 years ago oh the show yeah yes maybe. yeah but it, it's so, yeah. it's a very great time I, I yeah I, I'm going to be going I think next weekend so finally I can say I have gone to the the New Jersey coast coastlines a lot of very, really cool very um nice. so yeah to get started off also can you tell us a little bit about yourself what do you do so I guess from a from a personal standpoint we really like to I like to be outside kind of hiking running, exploring, and like Vermont has been like super great for us as it's a great destination for our whole family. My wife and I homeschool our children, Joanna and Elliot, and we're kind of seeing our family grow as naturalists. It's been really great here. When I'm kind of not outside, I'm usually a, a kind of a big nerd, like reading comic books, like Marvel superhero movies, and, and I like that a lot, playing board games and video games. But as a, as a scientist, my scientist self, I probably consider myself kind of inclusively to be an insect neurobiologist, though a lot of times labels like entomologist, molecular biologist, and chemical ecologist also stick kind of really well to me. I'm really interested in how insects, you know, why I'm on the podcast, they, how they can smell and how they can detect and interact with all these different smells around them. I used to work with mosquitoes, and now my main focus is on ants. But our group, our research group is really kind of exploring new avenues into fireflies and other beetles um, in the future. And then I, as a you know, main part of my career, I'm also a teacher. So I kind of, you know, even though I can make these research impacts, I think my main 
impact can be through training future scientists, whether it's in the teaching lab, uh, teaching classroom, or in my own research lab where they're getting kind of hands-on training. So what kind of courses do you teach? My course load is I do an invertebrate biology course uh, here, and I'll also be doing invertebrate or animal physiology, um, a cell biology and genetics class, and then also kind of upper level receptor pharmacology physiology courses. All right, so lots of different things that you're teaching. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Kind of my field has prepared me to be a jack of a lot of different trades, maybe a master of none, but I think I've, I've kind of specialized a little bit. Yeah, dabbling in different areas. So my that kind of leads me naturally into the next question, which is which came first for you, an interest in bugs or an interest in smell? And kind of how did you end up in your field? That's a that's a good question. It's it's quite the journey. It's a uh, I definitely was more interested in smell. I had taken undergraduate courses in um, kind of different sensory biology aspects, even though I was a biochemistry major in undergrad and I did my whole undergraduate research was in synthetic chemistry. But this one course was kind of talking about all the different smell receptors that we have. And I kind of really got interested in that. Even in the in my chemistry lab, there was certain products that we would make that we would make from our reactions and they would smell really nice, like spearmint and wintergreen smells. And I was always kind of smelling them, probably more than I should have. And then kind of as I went into graduate school, um, I found this lab that was working with smell. Yeah, they happened to be working with mosquitoes too, but it wasn't really a, a main focus. I'm like, hey, these kinds of skills and questions I'm asking, I could kind of ask in a lot of different organisms and it would be transferable. It wasn't really until I took, there was this opportunity, I took an insect chemical ecology course. That was a two week PhD course in Sweden, in Southern Sweden in the summer. It was during midsummer, it was really gorgeous. And it really kind of opened my eyes to the impact that insects, you know, chemical ecology research can have. Some of the things we would go to, like the big spruce forest, where they're trying to figure out ways to prevent bark beetles from infesting trees and all the research that, hey, can we push these, you know, this, these pests away from, you know, a big agricultural crop? Or kind of going into, we went into an apple orchard and saw all the practices that they were doing there. And it really kind of, hey, this is, insects is a place that I want to stay with. And and insect sense of smell is just a, a wonderful field to be in. That is really interesting. And that also leads nicely into the next question that I had for you is, I actually didn't know that bugs had a sense of smell. Um, I guess maybe I, I just had never thought about it before, so it just never crossed my mind. So kind of listening to you, it sounds like this is a very important sense for them. And can you just kind of elaborate a little bit more on how they use their sense of smell? And is that is it different than how humans use ours? Uh, yeah, it's it's probably their most important um, sense that they have. A lot of um, experts kind of consider olfaction and smell to be their main their main sense for a lot of different lifestyle um, behaviors. So if you're some sort of insect and you're trying to find a host plant. You use your sense of smell to smell the, the volatile compounds that it's emitting to, to locate it. If you're a mosquito, you have to smell that human. You'll react to the CO2 and then also the different body odor, human sweat components. And then now you have a nice blood meal to, you know, use to raise your, to, to raise your eggs and, you know, produce eggs and uh, lay them somewhere. 
then you have to figure out a great spot to lay your eggs, which a lot of times you might be saying, hey, I need to find the food for my future offspring. Can I smell out a good source, source of food for them? So all these kind of chemical signatures in the environment tell this insect, hey, is this a good place or a bad place? And then more into my research now is all these social insects like bees, ants, wasps, and termites that live in colonies, they have to communicate. And a lot of that colony communication relies on them having a very high, highly discriminatory sense of smell and different chemical compounds that can signal, hey, this is one of my nest mates, or this is an invader in our nest, and we need to kind of battle, battle her and get rid of her as soon as we can. Hmm, that's interesting. So it's like they're basing an intruder alert off of smell versus potentially like vision, like seeing the invader. Exactly. And especially if that invader is the same species as yourself, they might look almost identical. One interesting experiment that we've done, and several other labs have done this, is you can kind of take a glass, a clear glass bead, and you turn it into an artificial ant. You kind of cover it in the smells, the different kind of waxy compounds that coat the outside of an ant. And if you coat that bead with a non-nestmate, which would signal some sort of invader in your colony, and you put that artificial ant now in, in with other ants, those ants will attack it as if it's a, a huge threat, even though it's really just a, a big glass bead, but they use their sense of smell so much that that smells like an invader and they will act accordingly. That was really fascinating. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's yeah. really fun to see. And, and sometimes they'll just be attacking this bead for like 10 minutes or more. And they're probably confused because it's, like not an actual being it's a, a, like an item a, a, like a glass bead that they can't like nothing's happening it's not reacting yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> and they're and you know mostly it's just kind of rolling around with them kind of on top of it interesting so another thing that you had shared with me was an article about a new molecule that you helped to discover and this molecule is called vuaa1 so what does this have to do with mosquitoes and the future of mosquito repellent yeah, it was, a, it was a fun project that I kind of got started and hit the ground running um, as I started graduate school. There was this whole big project supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and their like grand challenges in global health specifically to kind of help control a lot of mosquito-borne diseases like malaria and dengue fever. And, and Zika is kind of the most recent buzzworthy uh, one. But so this was at Vanderbilt and it was, hey, can we look at mosquito olfactory receptors? Can, the, all the genes that help the mosquitoes smell out humans, can we study them and then kind of hit them with a bunch of different possible chemical compounds? I think it was like a, a quarter of a million different chemical compounds that would normally be in part a part of like a drug discovery library. And we kind of co-opted that project to say, hey, let's hit these mosquito receptors, see if we can discover new things that might either attract mosquitoes really well or repel them you know, you could attract them away from humans or repel them and kind of make personal protectants and repellents for humans to wear. And we did this and we found that there were this one compound that was really interesting because it seemed to hit a lot of the different receptors that we were testing. And then we're like, hey, maybe this is something that is more, more common than the different receptors. And it turns out there's this common, um, there's this common receptor gene that is included in all of the olfactory receptor complexes in insects and actually target that. It's called ORCO. It's like an olfactory receptor co-receptor. 
So we found that, hey, this VUA1 compound can actually work on Orco and turn on all the olfactory receptors in the insect at once. And it wasn't just mosquitoes. We looked at other insects and this compound was working there as well. So it was just really potentially powerful, also potentially harmful to all the good insects out in the world. And a couple um, companies kind of have implied, you know, kind of inquired about getting licenses. I think a couple have pursued VUA1 as a mosquito repellent. I haven't heard much in the last couple of years um, on that front, but I've kind of been since removed from that. But it's an exciting possibility. The whole kind of notion that you can have this kind of ruler compound that can activate everything at once, it's kind of like the equivalent of like smelling, you know, a really strong perfume. All the different notes are can be overwhelming and that's what we think it might do for an insect though it hasn't really been proven yet but there's been some nice work on kind of how these like we had the very first structure of an olfactory receptor from insects it was recently determined and they actually used this compound um, it had a major role in that project and it kind of confirmed some of our studies in it as well so it's really nice to see the community use this compound as a research tool as well hmm. So just coming from like a layman's perspective, the reason that that might work is because if it's turning on all of the strong smells at once, it would confuse the mosquito from being able to find like a human. Exactly. Yeah. And like the term is, you know, kind of thinking about it as a confusant. You're exactly right. And the thought is that, hey, well, it might be activating kind of attractive pathways. It also is going to be attract, um, activating repulsive pathways and aversive pathways. And typically, if something is both, most animals tend to, to listen to that aversive signal and avoid it. That's also very interesting. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so you also shared another paper with me, your most recent paper, about how you insert ant receptor genes into fruit flies, and then you stick electrodes in the antennae to figure out what they can smell. So can you share a little bit more about why you would want to conduct this type of research and what it's what it's doing? Yeah, the uh, as I kind of ascended from mosquitoes into ants, ants are kind of known to be these super smellers in the animal world. They have roughly the same amount of olfactory receptors as us, but they can discriminate small little changes in chemical structure that is really quite remarkable. The problem is when you try to study that in the ant itself, it's very complicated. A lot of insects might have like one or two neurons in all these little sensory hairs on their antenna, but ants actually have maybe 50 to 100 of these neurons in there. So it's really kind of a, a mess to deal with. So our lab where it uses the fruit fly Drosophila to kind of deconstruct a lot of the complication in the ant antenna. And we'll just say, hey, what can this fruit fly by itself detect from a smell standpoint? And now we added this single ant olfactory receptor and what are the new smells that it can, can pick up? And then after that, we say, hey, that's what this new, that's, that this new ant receptor gene is responsible for smelling. Now, why would we even want to do this? Because of kind of how you know, how great they are compared to all the other insects in terms of smell receptor diversity, trying to understand the evolutionary history and say, hey, how did these olfactory receptors evolve to be 
so specific and highly tuned to small little changes in odorants that they might encounter. So trying to understand that from an evolutionary context and even just how they, they work to enable ants to make small little corrections in um, how they can smell their environment and understand it is, uh, is a really intriguing question for just basic science and smell. So another question that's kind of popping up for me as we're as you're explaining this is how do you know what they are smelling so and maybe i'm not <laughs> asking the question correctly but like is it based off of chemical compounds that come out of a computer and then you can say like oh they can smell apple or i guess how does that work exactly like how do you know what they're smelling that's a great question and that's where that electrode comes in that i i probably forgot to answer in the first part of the question but we kind of take this fruit fly that now has the single ant gene in it and we put it under a very high magnification microscope, a very powerful microscope, and we use a kind of micro manipulator. So my interest in like video games has really helped me because I'm just kind of moving things in three different axes using a joystick and I'll bring this electrode in and all of a sudden we poke at one of these little sensory hairs in the antenna and connected in our whole um, apparatus, we have a guitar amplifier. So that is actually gonna, we can hear the neurons as they're firing, the olfactory neurons as they fire. Hmm. And you'll hear this kind of nice, you know, what you get used to, it's kind of a nice sound to have in the lab because it's this con continual popping of neurons as they fire. And then we take individual smells. Oftentimes we're not looking at kind of complex odors like apples or we're kind of breaking it down into the individual components. Right. And we'll puff them on and see how that changes. Like once you get a something that activates that receptor, you hear it from that like, you know, kind of small, kind of more infrequent popping noise. All of a sudden it's like, pop, 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 and you see this huge response visually and you can hear it as well. And that's mm -hmm. how we know, hey, that neuron um, now can respond to that compound because we added that ant receptor gene in there. Are there certain smells that you would expose the insects too that they cannot smell like would you be able to tell that because nothing's happening like no reaction and no noise is taking place exactly and sometimes you'll, you'll find things that don't respond at all now we're looking at kind of a single receptor so there might be other receptors that aren't being tested then that they do respond to but it kind of brings up a, a good comparison of sometimes you know we might think that some sort of compound doesn't have a smell to us, but we just don't have the, the smell receptors to pick it up. And I think this is something that you know, the anosmic community is, is very familiar with, but in, might be able to pick it up. Or if we are able, as humans, are able to smell some sort of odor, the insect might not be able to pick it up because it might not have any relevance for them in an evolutionary context. Right, it reminds me of like dog whistles. I mean, that's a completely different system, but like, there's this super high oh, very whistle, whistle noise. Yeah, that dogs can hear, but we don't hear. Um, so it seems like yeah. that's kind of similar in terms of smell. And Are there's we... just, you know, there's so many special things, especially the dogs. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my own dog. But when we when I did that course in Sweden, there was um, this bark beetle that infested these spruce trees. If you kind of went around and tried to look at certain trees that were infested, it would take a long time for you to find those little sawdust shavings around the tree. 
but dogs are actually capable of smelling the bark beetle aggregation pheromone. And they would actually train these German shepherds to smell out the pheromone. And then they'd go through with a GPS collar and find those infested trees and then remove them as soon as they could, which is super efficient and really you know, powerful that dogs you know, can actually smell this stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting too. So the majority of listeners do have some type of olfactory disorder. How do you think that the research that you're conducting now could translate to a treatment or solution for the anosmia community in the future? And this is probably the most challenging question that you prepared for this. Um, but I think for really direct comparisons, it's really hard to make those kind of extensions from our kind of research, especially because olfactory receptors for insects and humans and other vertebrates are completely different. Humans have olfactory receptors that are, are called G-protein coupled receptors. A lot, it's are kind of our most, one of our largest gene fam families in humans. And they just work a completely different way where all the olfactory receptors in insects are ion channels. And they work much faster, but they don't have the amplification power as the olfactory receptors in our own bodies. So it's hard to make a lot of those connections when we're staying at the olfactory receptor level. Now, I have been a part of collaborations that have essentially created anosmic um, insects, namely ants. And there, there's a really nice connection where understanding how, you know, typically from not from an acquired anosmic uh, perspective, but from a genetic anosmic perspective, how can, how does the rest of the body react to not having a functional olfactory system? And what are the changes? There's some really interesting changes because we've, in our group, we've found that these ants that don't have their, this one olfactory gene have a completely different effect that has never been perceived before in some of your more popular model insects like Drosophila fruit flies and mosquitoes. So seeing how different, different groups of animals respond to a genetic anosmia condition is uh, a nice extension. And I, and I will also say that even though it's not my personal research, there's a lot of really interesting uh, research groups that are looking at using insect olfaction as a model for humans that can really get into a lot of olfactory disorders. So a lot of insect work can apply, just people doing work with like uh, ants and, and beetles doesn't really extend well. Yeah, so are you saying that they have done some kind of experiment on ants where they induce anosmia and then study how their behavior is different. Exactly, and it's it's produced some really interesting observations. Where, like I said, ants use their olfactory system for so much of that chemical communication that goes on. And in the two ants that have had you know be kind of generated this anosmia model, they have very hard times interacting socially. They'll they might be kind of set off on their own. They might not, not be doing the typical behaviors of like nursing the young. They might just be like aimlessly wandering around the colony because all those signals that kind of reinforce the behaviors that it is doing just aren't getting through. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I definitely think there are so many more things linked to having a sense of smell than we realize still. Just in yes. general, whether we're an insect or a human, when you don't, when you no longer have that sense of smell, there are just so many different facets of your life, life that are impacted. And I don't think that there's a lot of research on that topic specifically yet. 
And it would be interesting, like moving forward into the future to see what are the, the main differences for people who have congenital anosmia and then also for people who have acquired. I think that would be really fascinating research. Yeah, and I, I agree with you there. And the kind of the converse, when people are like forced to use, and in fact, like research that has been shown, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about it maybe on this podcast before, like the classic experiment where like they took away all the other senses and they just had their olfactory system functional. And they tried to kind of navigate this chocolate, you know, essential oil of chocolate. And everybody thought they were doing poorly, but all that they did incredibly well. Are, are you, I guess, are you familiar with that? No, I'm not, but that sounds interesting. So what, what exactly did oh. they do? So um, this was Noam Sobel's group, I think when he was out at Cal Berkeley and had a bunch of grad students, they had kind of sensory deprivation everywhere in terms of they had these big padded gloves on, earmuffs, you know, kind of blinders over their eyes, and they just had to rely on their sense of smell. And they dragged the, like they kind of sprayed um, the essential oil of chocolate all along the ground. And they asked oh. these people to kind of get down on their hands and knees. I think they were mostly like grad students or undergraduate volunteers um, right. to get down on their hands and knees and follow it. And they kind of looked at their absolute progress and how well they did. And also they took surveys of how well they thought they did. And everybody kind of thought they weren't doing that well, but they did remarkably well. And if you kind of compare that to like how a dog, and they did this very well and how they marketed this research later, if you compare it to how like a bloodhound might track a pheasant through a field, kind of mm -hmm. they veer off the track, then they turn back and try to find it again and then push forward. The humans on their hands and knees were doing a very similar thing. So mm -hmm. it can do so much more for us than we understand. It's just sometimes your other senses kind of you know, cause a lot of noise that prevent humans from being really in touch with it. Yeah, well, th that researcher was smart to make it be chocolate that he used. <laughs> exactly. I don't think I don't think pheasant fe was going to attract uh, to get many, many people excited. Yeah, I don't even know. I can't even remember what pheasant would smell like. That's not something that most people would probably be familiar with right away. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? Yes, um, I guess it's kind of a, an extension um, and kind of trying to you know, prop up some insect olfaction research. But a lot of insect olfaction can really help from human quality of life in kind of indirect consequences that you might not realize. We just went to an apple orchard two weekends ago and we were walking around the orchard. And we saw these nice little red plastic ties on trees. And I recognize these as these are actually pheromone dispensers for the coddling moth. And the coddling moth is a huge pest that lays its eggs on the apples and the little caterpillars kind of burrow in and really destroy a lot of the product. And how this works is they're releasing a bunch of sex pheromone that the male moths will be attracted to. But now imagine if you're a male moth, you are kind of going upwind, you're thinking you're going to find a female ready to mate, you know, mother your children, and then you find a little piece of plastic. <laughs> Very underwhelming. And if you have a whole orchard that's full of these, it really makes the reproductive success of that population, it takes it way down. And then you have much lower kind of pest population in that orchard. Now, these are kind of, you know, the whole practice is called mating disruption, but it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a practice that's used in a lot of other organisms, even like gypsy moths, which are a big issue in the Northeast and kind of has been extending 
throughout the country since the, the early 1900s. And they're kind of using the same approach there. And, you know, so much, you know, because the insect uses its sense of smell so much that you think about any sort of harmful insect and not necessarily the nuisance ones that may enter your home, but human health pests like mosquitoes and kissing bugs spreading, you know, different diseases potentially, or agricultural pests that really have big issues. If you look at something and, and instead of like a blanket insecticide, that's not really going to be sustainable for the future. If you understand the specific pheromone biology, you're only going to target that specific species that's giving you an issue. And you might be maintaining beneficial insects and pollinators in the process. Interesting. So in this situation, to make sure I'm understanding it, basically, they're putting out these little strips to attract the male moths there to confuse them from finding an actual mate? Exactly. Yeah, there might be an actual mate, like one tree over, but it's very hard to find it if there's 10 to 100 sources of pheromone in that orchard. Got it. Okay. Man, you scientists are so smart. (laughs) (laughs) It's just fun little applications. When you get different fields kind of working together, I think, you know, the people understanding and kind of learning about and researching this pheromone, I don't think they ever really imagined this would be the, you know, huge output. But then you have some chemical engineers that are impregnating this plastic to have a slow release of the pheromone at all. All this interdisciplinary work can really create some some nice solutions. And it's not necessarily harmful to anyone because it's not a pesticide. Exactly. Yeah. Unless unless you're getting attracted to this, though, and we should all really visit apple orchards more. Right. That's interesting. So um, last question for you is actually, how can listeners connect with you on social media? Okay. So on social media, I've kind of limited everything to Twitter, where I put a lot. And actually, I have my classes on Twitter as well. But you can uh, follow me at, at G underscore Pask. And if you search that and you find somebody that has a little ant emoji next to their name, you found the right spot. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. It was definitely interesting to get a different perspective on smell than um, what is typically covered. So I think it'll be a good topic for, for listeners who are, who are joining us. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you to Dr. Pask for coming on the podcast and speaking with all of us today. It was really fascinating to learn about how insects use their senses of smell to navigate the world and to focus on a different area of smell than we usually do. You can connect with him on Twitter at G underscore P-A-S-K. If you'd like to see his bio on the Middlebury College website, I'll make sure to include that in the episode notes as well. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me at thesmellpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at The Smell Podcast and visit me online at thesmellpodcast.com. I'm always interested in sharing listener stories, so make sure you reach out. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Smell Podcast if you listen using iTunes. Reviews are helpful because they allow others to find the podcast. Finally, if you would like to financially support the show, you can do so by clicking on the link in the episode description, and I appreciate your support. As always, a huge shout out to everyone who currently contributes to the show because your generosity is what makes this podcast possible. Until next time, have a great day. Mm